Maggie Beatty Roberts. And I'm Kate Roberts. And we're really excited about today's episode. But just a quick note before we start. This season of Beyond the Letters was recorded before the coronavirus reached the United States and impacted so many areas of our lives, including education. Today's episode contains some pre-coronavirus thinking that can still be effective in your educational spaces. We should also note it was recorded before the protests that have thankfully changed so much of our national dialogue on race. We strive to check our privilege during these conversations, and we are in constant motion to become better allies. Here at Beyond the Letters, Black Lives Matter. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Welcome to Beyond the Letters. I'm Maggie Beatty Roberts. And I'm Kate Roberts. And I am excited to have our guest today. Um, Jess Lipschitz has been in the classroom (laughs) teaching for over 15 years. Um, She is a fifth grade uh, teacher of literacy in Illinois. She has a popular blog, uh, Crawling Out of the Classroom, that I would absolutely recommend you check out. You can find her at Scholastic Reading Summits, and her work has been featured on the Heinemann Podcast and is has been a contributor to HuffPost. Jess, we are very excited to have you today. Thank you. I'm Yay. excited to be here. I, um, you know, before we started recording, we were talking about the Midwest, where we are both from and Part of me wants to just start talking about the weather because it feels like that's very like a Midwest thing to do. Um, But instead of that, (laughs) which we could do, I was curious, um, you know, if you think back, you know, across the landscape of your teaching as a classroom practitioner, um, um, uh, did you have a critical moment or... um, a memory that stands out to you that maybe was formative in shaping the educator that you are today? Um, Well, in terms of shaping the queer educator that I am, I think I'm actually living through a critical moment. (laughs) Uh, I uh, came out to my students the year that I got engaged. And so the only out I've really ever been with my students is by sharing my relationship status. Right. So when I was engaged, um, you know, I had I faced that moment like, okay, now I have this ring and 10-year-olds are really observant about things like that. So then they'd ask, and am I going to A, not wear my ring to school or B, lie when oh um, they ask who I was engaged to or C, is this the moment I come out? So I chose C. <laughs> and I came out that year and it actually, I was incredibly lucky to be supported by wonderful administrators throughout my career. Um, But every year after that, the way I came out was by introducing my family. So that has been my experience and it's been really positive and it's, um, you know, in the big scheme of things, been fairly easy. So now I'm going through a divorce and with all the struggle that's coming, there's also that big piece of my identity And what I didn't realize until this moment I'm living in is that I have been so okay being an out educator because it felt like I had permission to talk about it when I was talking about my family. So I could say my wife and I could say my daughter has two moms and that felt okay. Now, how do I introduce the queer part of who I am without being married to a woman? Because now what I'm noticing is it feels like I don't have permission. Like all of a sudden I don't, then it's not 
appropriate or acceptable. Right. Right. And I think we feel like we've come so far because I could have a picture of my wife up. That's right. But do I really still feel safe um saying I'm a lesbian without attaching that to describing my family? And the answer is no, I don't. That's right. Um and I have a lot of work to do internally and we have a lot of work to do in the yes. world. Um because it is okay. That's my identity. It shapes how I move through the world. And that is one of the major things that I talk with my students about. So how could I leave that piece of me out? But I didn't realize how not okay that felt. But there is still this part where it's like it is much easier and I think, you know, a lot of privilege inside of it of being like, yeah, I'm queer. I'm married uh, to one person. We have kids and we're living this kind of way that everyone approves of. It's harder to be either single, divorcing or or all sorts of ways right uh, you know maybe at gay pride we can be funky and and uh and not fit a mold but every other day of the year we should probably still wear our khakis <laughs> <laughs> still wear our polo right. shirts and be good gays right. right and that idea that it's acceptable to talk about that piece of my identity right. if i'm talking about my family but it's somehow less okay to just tell my students i'm gay right that affects my life that's a piece of who i am the same way i would share that I'm Jewish, That's right. I don't need a reason to share that. It doesn't have to be a Jewish holiday for me to tell the kids <laughs> I'm Jewish. It's just a piece yeah. of who I am. So of course I would share that. And I don't feel that that same acceptance. I think there'll be more questions and concerns. I, I mean, I, I just, uh, it's like I could just fall down from the power and in realness of that testimony. Um, uh, because it's like I'm thinking a couple of things. One, um, if I attach my queerness and my identity to family structure, something that everybody can kind of like, everybody who's anybody kind of knows the want or the or the or the love of either having a child or having a parent, that familial bond. And then also too, this is a rough draft thought that I'm having in the moment. Is it? Does it normalize the queer experience because we're attaching it to technically a heteronormative structure of marriage and how much um, power or place that marriage, the institution of marriage, uh, gives uh, queer folks to be able to legitimize their identity in front of others? And then when that structure is disrupted, what are we left with? Um, I can't tell you how powerful that that's uh, well, affecting me right now. It has now. such far-reaching uh, 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 tendrils. <laughs> what I'm saying right now is <laughs> far-reaching. Far-reaching. Because it's about appropriateness, yes. right? And all okay. of a sudden, if yeah. I, my gayness isn't attached to this traditional sort of almost conservative yep. idea that feels safe and antiseptic yes. and isn't sexual because it's about family, mm. all of a sudden it becomes this thing that doesn't feel as appropriate for kids. But that same thing comes up about literature right. in our classroom, yes. right? Is this book appropriate for right. our kids when it would be appropriate if it were a boy and a girl right. or it was a straight relationship being talked right. about or a straight coming of age story, right. right? As soon as it's same sex, 
or a trans story. It has this inappropriateness to right. it. Well, and I think another one of the struggles that that I have is that I've always sort of said it's almost like given me a reason why it was okay to yeah. say that I'm gay in the classroom because um, you know I could always I there was a a straight comparison. So yeah. I could say things like, well, the teacher across the hall doesn't have a problem saying she and her husband did this. So why should I not be able to say my wife and I did this? Yeah. But there aren't a lot of reasons for a straight educator to stand in front of a room and say, I'm straight. Right. There's not that equivalent. So I don't have that argument anymore, other than to say, I think we should be, right. all of us <laughs> should be able to stand up and say, I'm straight or I'm gay. So then the argument becomes, I share that because it's a piece of my identity. And as an educator, as a human, I want to model that every piece of your identity is welcome in this classroom. And so that is a harder argument to sell to people mm -hmm. because it's not as cut and dry right. and not everyone understands that. I think the concreteness of being able to say, well, the woman across the hall gets to talk about her husband, so I should be able to talk about my wife. That's hard to argue yep. with. It's a little bit easier for people to argue with why I still have the right to bring my full self as an educator into the classroom. And I think that, you know, you know, it's it's like what you're doing, too, is like honoring a, a big old group of people. Right. That it isn't OK that somebody's identity is um, able to be named because they're in relation to someone else. Right. That that we need to. We need to center that experience for anybody who, um, regardless of who they are attached to. But I think your point is you're right. Like if I'm a single, straight, you know, identified person, um, you know, I yeah, I don't start my lesson. Hey, I'm Miss Beatty and I'm straight. You know, or, I don't know. Talk because back to that. of course they assume you are straight. Well, right? there you go. So you don't need to say I'm straight. There you because go. Because everyone's assuming you are. Whereas your kids need you to say I'm gay so yeah. that they can encounter that, understand it, relate to it. Yeah. I think it's the same way white people don't often state we're white because we have that privilege of not having to think about it. And I think straight people that is, have that yep. same privilege. Um, I mean, in a very different way, but that idea that when you are um, not forced to wrestle with it and confront it and think about it, you're not going to name it. And I think that's the identity work we all have to do in our classrooms, that our full selves are welcome here because our children's full selves are welcome here. And part of making that welcome is naming all parts of our identity. And so that when I was married, I didn't have to think about these things. So this is really a reckoning for me. Um, and I, I would imagine that most queer educators are probably waiting to be in a relationship before they come out to their students. And I think that's sad. It is sad. Because that's not what validates us as queer people. And I think that is a piece we still have a long way <laughs> to go on. Well, and kids need to see all kinds of queerness, right? right. They need to see right. that being gay doesn't just mean uh, being in a relationship with kids. Right. That it can mean a lot of different things. Right. Yeah. Like, and, and that there's lots of different markers for that, you know, like, um, I usually get read at first glance, um, as, as being straight and, um, uh, I have to lean on other markers, right. To kind of like define. And so I do lean on, 
um, the boys have two moms or uh, my wife uh, because my uh, appearance or the way that I physically take up space in a room may not communicate queerness at first go. And then just trying to figure out like a big uh, definer, right, has been taken away from me or and I have to I have to redefine how I I'm, I haven't changed, right? I'm still here. So how do I change? Uh, uh, how do how do I don't know? How do I find new markers for expressing who I am that feels just as valid as anybody else? Well, and again, just to flip it, like you were saying, oh, the colleague across the hall, you being able to say, like, well, you know, he gets to talk about his wife. Obviously, I can talk about mine. But like, I remember being in fifth grade ish middle school, and there was like a we assume straight. Uh, PE teacher who was single mm -hmm. and it was so thrilling to everyone that he was single. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We were not threatened. It was not inappropriate right. that we knew he was single and probably dating and we were obsessed with who he might be dating, right? And would talk right. about it probably in very inappropriate right. ways. <laughs> the kids were inappropriate for sure. Do you know what I mean? Be like any female teacher or female yeah. that walked in the building we were like, are you are you dating her? You know? And he's like, no. I all the time, right? So it's this idea of like, it's the same thing. Like, why is that completely normalized and acceptable and a marker that one can hold on to to express mm -hmm. themselves? Mm -hmm. And yet again, there is this feeling of like, oh, well, I probably shouldn't say it because right. it's different because I'm gay. And right. are the kids going to say that about any woman that walks in the school? Right. Are you dating her? Right. You know? I sure hope so. It would be I awesome. Hope, it would be so awesome. I hope they so awesome. running up because there's a lot of women who walk into an elementary That's the day. dream. <laughs> I know I know. we say that gay marriage is the marker of success, but I think that's yep. the marker yeah, of success is when our schools – I saw a woman. Are you yeah. dating her? That's the mark. Yep. We'll I'll know we've made know. it when it's that normalized. I'll let you know if it happens. <laughs> um, there are many reasons I'm excited to talk to you, uh, but – you know, one is just uh, your huge experience in the classroom with kids, upper elementary, um, you know, that a lot has like changed over 15 years and a lot of things have also stayed the same. How um, are there are there things that you do in your classroom, moves that you make, resources that you use that you could offer um people uh just starting out in this work to start trying okay uh <laughs> yeah you probably want those i will i have <laughs> my, if you feel comfortable I have sharing pen them. In hand. So you have more than just yes <laughs> I am um so i i think what i've come to understand is that any work that you're going to do in the classroom has to start with yourself first and i think it actually can be uh detrimental to children if you rush into the work in the room before you do it within yourself. And so I feel like the first learning has to be internal and reflective. And the way to do that, in my opinion, is to just be very aware of the voices that are informing your instruction and your practice and your understanding of self and identity. And when I started to look at the voices informing all that understanding, they were very white. They were very white and they were very straight. Yeah. Um, and they were saying very similar things. Um, and so for me, the big game changer was getting on Twitter and finding an online community that was more diverse than my uh, physical community. Uh, I've grown up in a lot of white spaces. I've grown up in a lot of straight spaces. Um, education in general is a mm -hmm. white and straight <laughs> space. Um, 
And so I, I am also not a social human. So it is hard for me to make connections with people in the real world. So the online space allowed for me to have almost instant access and in my opinion removes all excuses mm -hmm. to not diversifying the people who are informing your understanding of life. Um, so for anyone wanting to start the work, I think getting on Twitter, I'm sure there's like newer, cooler spaces online <laughs> to be. I just don't know them. It's still a it's really, still a really powerful good and good one. I mean, yeah, I feel like if you haven't explored Twitter, um, that is absolutely a first go-to place to go. Yeah, and to be deliberate about the people you're Thank you're you. following. Yep. Um, you know, for me in terms of of race, starting with the clear the air hashtag, that will lead you to so many important people. Val Brown herself will lead mm -hmm. you to yes. so many mm -hmm. important yep. people. Um, and and I think from there, you know, also looking for queer voices in education and and. That doesn't just mean um, gay and lesbian educators, but people who are transgender and non-binary, because I think I, when I think of my own learning and how much further I have to go, those are the spaces, those are the voices I still need to draw from. So that would be like step one is <laughs> increase the amount of people you're listening to and the diversity of those people. And just to add on to that, to listen then. Do you know what I mean like to take the time to like read and like wrestle and listen and be internal, not external, right? It's not necessarily saying I'm going to at everyone on Twitter that I have questions for, yeah. right? But that I'm going to actually use Twitter as a platform to like take in new information and then wrestle with it inside myself and figure out. Yeah. And I've had to really uh, deliberately force myself to think differently because sometimes um, I'll, I'll read a tweet from, you know, an expert in um, rep children's literature and representation in terms of diversity. And I'll read them, uh, I'll read a tweet that is critical of a text. And I, I can still hear my own head, in my own head, hear myself think, well, no, they're overreacting. <laughs> yes. mm -hmm. And I have to catch myself and instead reframe it as, I don't yet understand the problem. I need to work harder so that I get it. And that's been a really deliberate shift for me. So now I approach it from, I know they're right, but I don't understand why yet. So I have to do the work. That's and right. and usually they've already put it out there as to why something's problematic. I just need to go find it and read about it and, and do better. Um, so I think that's something we can do when we see those and just sort of check ourselves, like when it's like, oh, come on, yep. they're overreacting to like know that that's a sign of oppression, yep. <laughs> that we live in an oppressive system yep. and instead say, no, I know they're right. I'm not sure why. Let me understand. I don't remember what I was saying. I think that's time. so important. No, it was just okay. <laughs> talking about the importance of listening yes. when yes. you're following those people on Twitter and you're learning from other people right. to just position yourself in a place of listening, not asking. Yes. Right? And that you're hearing your initial reactions yes. and reframing them yeah. with a more curious lens. Yeah. And I think that's led to the most significant growth within myself is just getting myself to, to listen and work to understand. Um, yeah, so I think that's a good place mm -hmm. to start. And then, you know, I think when you're ready to dig in to work in the classroom, we are teachers of literacy. So to me, the books and um, looking at identity, um, you know, I, I think Sarah Ahmed's book, Being Change, is a perfect place to start. Um, 
what I didn't understand a, a few years ago was how important it was to ask the children to look at their own identities before I asked them to value the identities of other people. I think I skipped over that. Um, I think I like told myself a story that that was, you know, like cutesy community building and I don't, we don't have time for that. And what a, what a shame that was that I, yeah. I didn't get that earlier, but Sarah's book, I think really pushed me to understand that understanding your own identity is really the place to start with the kids as much as it is for me as an educator. So doing the work, um, naming facets of identity including sexual orientation, um, which I've also decided we need another term for. Because I think a lot That's of right. the, the problem is that people associate it with sex, right. which obviously I'm not bringing that topic <laughs> up with fifth graders <laughs> until May. Until <laughs> May. <laughs> um, but just sort of naming those things and naming all the facets of identity and getting kids to look critically, I think is a a good place to start. And then making sure that you're reading books that allow opportunities for kids to understand the people we share this world with. Um, and I, I think it's really important. I think there's a lot of great books that, I, I, the book that's coming to mind that I want to just sort of wrestle with is the book Red about the crayons. Yes. And it's great. Lovely book. It, you know, talks about it. I can't remember if it's a blue crayon that has a red wrapper or it's the other there you go. And so I think as educators, we sometimes feel really proud of ourselves when we read this book and we're like, it could be about someone who's transgender, but it's not about someone who's transgender. And it doesn't name that there's a person who's transgender. And I think it's really important when we're starting the work that we're really deliberate, that the, the books we're choosing really honor the identities that we're trying to bring into the classroom. And I think our kids need to hear all of us as educators say words like gay and lesbian and transgender and non-binary, because the only time I think so many of our kids hear us say those words is when we're yelling at them mm -hmm. to say, well, don't say, don't yeah, call someone yeah, gay. Yeah. That's so that's right. the only time yep. they hear their teachers say it. And so, you know, then they associate gay as a negative word. I can't tell you how many times I've been playing boggle with the kids and I know they see that the word gay is there and I, they're like, oh. and sometimes kids will even ask, like, can I write the word gay? And they know I am right, gay. Right, right, right. <laughs> and you're like, no. Right? No, no, because I want to win. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they really, um, they think it's the language themselves itself, they think is inappropriate for school. And I think we have to, when we're reading the books, we read the books that use the words. And to normalize it, right? Yeah. To normalize it, to make it not a big deal to say that word, right? For them to hear it enough that it is a part of language, right? right? It's not a strange thing to hear a grown up use those words to identify people that way, right. to read stories about people that way. Right. And the truth is the world is really helping us out. Yeah. The world is yeah. really because all around us. I can't tell you how many times I say the word transgender for the first time in the school year and the kids all raise their hands and go, oh, well, I watch Jazz Jennings on whatever channel <laughs> Jazz Jennings is on because she has her own show right. now. Right. And so the only space that, like with so many other things, yes. I think education takes so long to catch up with the rest of the yep. world that our kids are using the words, yep. but we're not. So they think, well, I can use it outside of school, but that's not something I can talk about here. So reading the books that say the words 
and for straight educators to say the words makes it easier for me as a queer educator to say the words without anyone complaining. I mean, I I could keep talking for the next hour, basically, but let's, I just want to recap a couple things and then let's do closing thoughts. So what I love is that what you bring to the table are really simple things that anyone can do, that we can um, get educated by making sure that the voices we're hearing are from a wide array of identities and perspectives and experiences and learn to listen, Um, that we can start to name things in our classroom and bring books into our classroom that offer up language and identities and experiences that we want our kids to see themselves in, to see others in and, and normalize it a bit. And then there's also this whole idea of just being able to trouble and again, internally first and then externally, the idea of like appropriateness and inappropriateness and when is it okay to be gay and when is it not okay to be gay and how do we offer up kids different visions of what queerness looks like that it doesn't have to be a kind of traditional family model for it still to be all right because there's lots of ways that straight people get to be in the world. That's really, really helpful, Jess. Thank you. So we are at the time of our podcast. The music is coming on. The show credits are rolling. Why don't we have a theme song? And we're here to um, talk about the closing five. Closing five is a a ritual that uh, ends our podcast by posing the same five questions to each guest and uh, just peeking into their lives a little bit by studying the answers they get Are we ready for question number one? I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. Question number one. Um, What is one thing we won't see you without? What I want to say is something to read. And that's mostly true. But what's always true, my phone. All right. All right. That's. I mean, I wish I was a a person who just could answer something to read. Mostly true. But within your phone... There are things to read. There you go. So I That's think right. you could say yes. something to read. So my answer is something to read. Well done. Good answer. <laughs> so impressive. Really? You're so literate. I'm so literate. <laughs> Question number two. Uh, what is your favorite article of clothing? A hooded sweatshirt. Right? It's the Midwest. You know, it's the Midwest. Uh-huh. It's because of the cold and the winds. Right. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh oversized do you remember your first concert and if so what was it i the first oh let's answer it this way the first concert i remember going to yep. is indigo girls at ravinia do you know ravinia i definitely yeah. do yes i actually hate ravinia I, like you know it is it's ravinia <laughs> but it's the indigo girls it's an outdoor concert yep. space okay it's yep. just, there's a lot of people okay it's very crowded okay and uh, that's where I saw Indigo Girls. But can that's I just I back up and say that you now have won the award for the most lesbian answer to any I mean, I would say, question, yes. right? Yes. I think you won. Well done. Thank you. We have no prizes. <laughs> but our respect. The our respect. That's you a won. huge prize. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was your first queer icon? So there's this Australian singer-songwriter. Mm-hmm. Her name's Missy Higgins. And I, I think she was queer for five minutes, but it happened to be, well, no, she's queer. Um, I don't know how she identifies. I don't actually know her. She's not a friend of mine. Uh, but as I was coming out, which happened later in life, like yep. 25, 26. Um, so 
she was also, you know, uh, dealing with rumors of her own sexuality. And for whatever reason, like I totally connected to her story. I mean, she's also really cute. So that mm-hmm. helps. Um, but like our like coming out lives sort of intersected. And so in my mind, we're friends. So she's my icon. That's fantastic. I have to look that I'm up. Going to be yeah, really I know. T-shirts. It's going to be a t-shirt. It's going to be a digital we'll be yeah, playlist. Yep. Thank you. Uh, who is your current queer icon? I'm going to go with Roxanne Gay. Well done. Right? That's a good one. That's a good lesbian yeah, answer, Yeah, that's too. a good lesbian right? answer. Also a good literate answer. And now you, you doubled the literate and the lesbian yes. answer for the win. Thank you. That is brilliant. She is, uh, I think she's engaged. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that that too. So now she can tell people she's gay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She can come out there. Thank goodness. You. (laughs) It's appropriate now. Well, thank you so much, Jess. It's been such a privilege to talk to you. Thanks for having me. It's been a privilege to be here. Beyond the Letters is a production of Heinemann Publishing and the Heinemann Podcast. To learn more about our guest this week, visit blog.heinemann.com. 